Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Women Worth Knowing. That's right. My name is Jasmine Allnut, and I'm here with... Cheryl Broderson. I asked Jasmine, like, you do it first. I always do it first. We're mixing it up on you guys. That's we right. don't want you to get complacent here. And actually, her last name, Allnut, comes before my last name, Broderson, because yeah. A becomes before B. I guess we need to do that once in a while, right? Just right. to Yeah, it's just so we have everything decent and in order. Yeah, and keep you guessing. <laughs> so, Jasmine, we're finishing up Hannah Moore. Yes, we are doing part one of your two. favorite women. You know, she's become a favorite recently, mm-hmm. and I'm so excited that we get to talk about her a little bit more today. So, um, quick recap because, oh my goodness, there's so much on her life. Uh, she was, as we learned already, one of five sisters, and they all started a school together. Um, Hannah begins writing plays, She launched, which kind of launched her into the intelligentsia of London. So she gets to start rubbing shoulders with a lot of prominent men and women of that day in the field of literature and the arts and, you know, just uh, the aristocracy, those kind of folks. But she starts to see while she's there the emptiness of their lives. And she starts realizing that God is calling her to to hire things, to use her gifts for his glory, um, and to kind of change the culture, really, to go and really see what God might want to do. And uh, in particular, it was a book she read by John Newton, who we talked about, and meeting with him in 1787. Uh, That's what really began to inspire and change her uh, perspective on how she could do these things and serve the Lord. And you guys probably remember John, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace after being a slave trader himself. And uh, it's interesting because John Newton also inspired another person named William Wilberforce. And the neat thing is, uh, is that uh, Hannah Moore got connected with both of them around the same time. It was almost like the Lord kind of starting to redirect her. So after she meets John Newton, she also meets Wilberforce. They connect and they just started working together on slave abolition because they found they were so like-minded in wanting to serve the Lord and um, see the Lord um, transform the culture uh, for the sake of the gospel, for his purposes. And so uh, their friendship actually became one of the longest and dearest of her life. She said they actually died within weeks of each other before the and after the Emancipation Act, which is kind of cool in 1833. So, um, you know, just getting on that whole sl- slavery track, that's kind of where we left off in the last episode. Um, we always talk about, and we know this, we've done episodes on uh, slavery in the American South and how it was such a foundational part of the economy in the U.S. But, you know, I don't think we always think about the fact that it, slave, the slave trade was also a huge part of the British well, economy. Well, especially because they had like the West Indies, right? Yes. And that's yes. where they were growing the sugar. So all of yes. their sugar, where for us it was our cotton, for them, their sugar all oh, depended. For their tea. <laughs> yeah, for their tea, right? Their sugar for their tea. But it all depended on uh, slavery. Mm. And that's actually know? a really good point because what people don't realize is the West Indies had the most slaves, actually. Mm-hmm. We always think of, you know, the American South and it's like the most slaves went to the West Indies. So it was such a huge part. That's a great point because it was such a huge part of the English economy. And I think they might have realized it was a, a distasteful industry, but People couldn't imagine how the economy could function. Um, It's interesting, when emancipation finally happened in Britain, it had a direct cost, not even an indirect cost, a direct cost of 20 million pounds. Wow. Which back, I mean, that's a lot now. That is, yeah. Think about the, yeah, 17, 1800s. That was just a phenomenal amount of money that that was being, an industry completely being wiped out. So 
That's why this was such an uphill battle. If you've ever read or become familiar with the anti-slavery movement in England, it was just as fierce a battle uh, as it was in the States because of the economy. So Moore at first started writing kind of quietly against slavery. She started befriending people in the anti-slavery movement and started kind of quietly trying to convince people about the inhumanity of slavery. But once she met Wilberforce, it was just like game on. Like Mm -hmm. we're going (laughs) to become more vocal, more aggressive with this. Um, And it's cool because um, a lot of people are familiar with William Wilberforce and think about how influential he was. But Hannah really was his in with a lot of the um, elites um, and the literary elite, especially. And so she started kind of using her wit and her personality, her social connections to help him further the exposure of the evils of slavery. Um, Because again, a lot of Brits, a lot of the aristocratic Londoners, they were very comfortably insulated against what the slave trade really was. They, you know, they didn't want to think about it out of sight, out of mind. They're just blissfully unaware living their lives. And she's like, no, I'm going to bring this right in your face. (laughs) So she wrote a poem uh, called Slavery in 1788. And this was when she really launched out and started again, like I said, becoming more aggressive and vocal with it. And she timed it to appear right when Wilberforce was presenting his first anti-slave trade bill to parliament. Let's just say Mm, something really quick because, you know, we look back on Hannah fondly, but when she took these views, she became very unpopular with a lot of the society that she had been very friendly with. Yes. And I think that's very important to bring out because we think, oh, you know, everybody in England just turned and said, this is so noble. (laughs) This is so wonderful. But even on the movie on Wilberforce, Mm. uh, what's that movie called? It's so good. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. You see how how hated he became. I mean, this was, and especially by uh, wealthy, influential people. Yeah. So the fact that this anti-slavery began to pass, began to get momentum, is nothing less than miraculous. I mean, this is Jesus fighting for his people all over. Let my people go. Yeah, it really is. That's a really good point, too. This wasn't, yeah, a walk in the park and, oh, everybody's going to agree with me. It Mm -hmm. wasn't like that. And it's not a popular decision by any means. And she's a single woman. Yep. So, and, and, you know, she comes from this literary background and Mm. that could have stopped her, but instead it didn't because she was seeking to please the Lord. Amen. That came across in just this biography I was listening to. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. And so it's really cool because (laughs) one historian said that this poem and some of her other writings became one of the earliest propaganda campaigns for social reform in English history. And she really played a huge role in shifting public opinion. Her biographer said Moore was the single most influential woman in the British abolitionist movement. And so she really became kind of like the Harriet Beecher Stowe Mm -hmm. of England. Mm -hmm. It was was very, yes, Yes. it was very similar. Mm -hmm. Like what you were saying. I mean, the Southerners hated Harriet Beecher Stowe. We talked about that. That's right. She's still hated. (laughs) I mean, she's still hated. And she's become, yeah, a propaganda figure like, oh, yeah, Uncle Tom. And instead of realizing this woman was you know, loving and kind, and and she chose these moves. And the same thing with Hannah Moore. Absolutely. Exactly. And so um, it's actually one really cool thing about her becoming such a major abolitionist figure was that uh, the Church Missionary Society, they were taking in orphan girls um, from Africa, and they started naming all of them Hannah, because that's how how Mm -hmm. influential she was. I mean, she just touched so many lives. Mm -hmm. The people that were on that side of the issue, they felt like they had a voice, and Mm -hmm. they were so thankful for her. I thought that was so sweet. Um, She said, what is morally wrong can never be politically right. It's like, wow, we could really use a dose of that today. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) And that's often attributed to Lord Shaftesbury, but she's the one who said it, and she really lived that out. So 
around the same time, so this is all going on, the anti the abolitionist uh you know, fight went on for decades. I mean, that was a long process. In the middle of all of this, um, Hannah and her youngest sister, Patty, uh, began to work on education reform. What happened was uh, Wilberforce came. He was supposed to be just getting away for a little vacation to come visit his friends, the Moore sisters. And they went around. They were hanging out uh, in some of the local villages or like, you know, just in the countryside. And they went through a local village. And Wilberforce was kind of like had an overactive mind and was just always seeking, like, how can we do the most good? And he's looking at this town and he's like, what are we doing for these kids? Hannah, you and your sister need to start a school for these. I mean, look at these underprivileged kids who have nothing. And she was just like, oh, I hadn't really thought of that. And so he really urged her and Patty, her youngest sister, to open up a Sunday school. And Sunday schools at this time, I think Cheryl might have mentioned this in a previous podcast. It wasn't like what we think of where you go to church and then go to Sunday school. Uh, originally, it was a, a school that met on Sundays because that was the only day in the week that um, poor people, factory industry workers had off. That was their only day off. And so they would open these schools so the kids could actually come and get some education. They decided to start it in the town of Cheddar, which was nearby. I'm assuming that's where we get cheddar cheese from. I don't know. Well, all those cheeses come from the place that they are. Like yeah, even okay, uh, that's true. You're right. It, it's all named after Wensleydale. the place. It came. That's right. <laughs> They're all locations. So there we go. We have a location and, cheese. And they became a type of cheese because of the location <laughs> originally. This, yes, exactly. So the town of Cheddar, that was where they decided to start the first school. And that town was in such bad shape that all the local villagers and people in the area called it little hell. I mean, it was so mm. bad. The people were practically slaves to their landowners, and they were so poor that Hannah was just, she was ashamed of her own comforts whenever she saw, you know, she started going in and seeing their deprivation. Um, and what was really tragic was that the clergy there, you know, there were Church of England churches like all over the countryside, everywhere, but the clergy had basically abandoned all of these villages in the area and neglected the people, but... Because the Church of England was a state church, they still took in tithes. So they're taking the people's like money in as a as a tax, basically on the for the church, but they're not doing anything for the people. And and some of the you know vicars there, they hadn't even preached a sermon there in years. It was just super corrupt. Uh, there was one clergyman. Um, she said that was reported to be in such a state of intoxication six times a week and often prevented from preaching by black eyes he earned by fighting. <laughs> It's like these guys are in ministry, quote unquote. I mean, Hannah in that in the village of Cheddar, she only saw one Bible, and it was being used to prop up a flower pot. I mean, there, nobody. I mean, there was just no spiritual influence or anything. They just had been abandoned out there. And she actually wrote to John Newton, and she said, "It is grievous to reflect that while we're sending missionaries to our distant colonies, our own villages are perishing for lack of instruction." This was something that most of the, you know, middle and upper class English people were just ignoring. They didn't even notice they had a mission field right there. Hannah and Patty obviously had their work cut out for them. And uh, the poor villagers there, you know, so Patty, Patty and Hannah start going in and talking about starting the school. And the villagers were very suspicious. They actually thought their kids were going to be sold into slavery. I mean, they were so used to being oppressed. They didn't think anyone would actually want to do them Weren't any good. Weren't they also uh, accused of trying to proselytize people into Methodism, too? Oh, well, there's—yes, that was an issue, too. I mean, there were so many—yeah, <laughs> so many suspicions. Exactly, yes. even religious suspicions. Yes. And so, um, not only that, but a lot of the landowners and the wealthy didn't want the poor to become educated or even religious on any level, probably, like you said, because the Methodists were enthusiasts. Okay. We don't want any well, of that well, going also, on. Well, also, not only that, but then they have to give them rights. Yes, if exactly. They have to respect them. 
They have to, otherwise they can just label them yeah. and, oh no, they're so not Christian, so I can treat them anywhere I want. Yep. And all of a sudden, when they become children of God, uh-oh, you know. Boy, that's so true. I mean, that was an issue for people on the mission field as well. Right. And that's right. exactly it, because then it was like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. if they have rights, they might start leaving their station. Plus, you also have the French Revolution at the and same they time. they didn't, exactly, they and didn't want. That's right. They're afraid if you give too many rights to people, what you will have is what happened in mm-hmm. France. Oh, that was where the masses fear. will, oh, it was huge, yeah. huge in England. Oh, yeah. Because France is just right across the, you know, channel from them. Mm-hmm. So they were really afraid of an English revolution. Yeah. Because of what they had done to the poor, because of the coal miners and how mm-hmm. oppressive everything had been, and withholding education yes. from the poor. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something Hannah had to address was mm-hmm. empowering the poor without promoting revolution. That's right. And writing that, you know, that fine line there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, and, and that was the thing the, the, for the rich. I mean, they really sincerely believed that strict social stratification. I mean, not only was it, you know, they didn't want to see any uprisings, but they kind of got them, talked themselves into believing this was God ordained. Okay. But one more part you know? of this that was mm. a very controversial was again, Hannah and her sister are women. And they're educating yes. men. Yes. That's one. Yeah. yeah. Boys. But and here's the controversial. They're also educating women. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of men that were very intimidated by women that could read and write. Yeah. That was very intimidating because, you know, what if the wives rise up against the husbands <laughs> or get are, are more intelligent than the husbands? And for a lot of these men, um, because they were literate, reading never came mm. easy to them to learn to read. Mm-hmm. And these women which catch on and now their wives are reading because they've got a little time to read. Yeah. And they're getting these ideas in their head. So education believe it or not, because it seems so crazy to us, yeah. was a very intimidating thing for a little it village. Was. and controversial. Right. Education was so controversial. You're right. For all of these factors, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. social stratus. Mm-hmm. Like, again, there's the, the husband-wife dynamic, the women dynamic, the French Re- Revolution dynamic. And then again, just that idea that the poor had that, that God had ordained the poor to be ignorant servants and slaves, and it was better for them if they just stayed that way. Now, they probably had to do a lot of mental gymnastics to talk themselves into thinking that was a God-ordained thing, but that was what was culturally accepted. And so the social mobility thing that we just so take for granted now, I mean, that was not happening. It was like, not that England was a full-on caste system, but it was very stratified. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this is all exactly, that that exact explains why this was so controversial. So basically, Hannah and Patty had to go door to door among the rich and poor people to win people over to this idea. Honestly, you read about it and it's like, they were going on the mission field and having to patiently earn the trust of the people before bringing education in, almost like you earn the trust of the people and share the gospel <laughs> with them. And so over time, their resilience, their perseverance, uh, their charm, like Hannah could be very charming. That was almost like a gift from the Lord. I mean, she was just so winsome. And it eventually paid off. Uh, the first school opened in Cheddar with 130 kids, amazingly. And so ultimately, the more sisters were able to open more than a dozen schools throughout the whole Somerset region. And it was neat because they geared the educational skills to each community's needs. You know, they saw what was needed in each community and brought work skills and education to what was adapted to what was necessary. But most importantly for Hannah, the children were learning the Bible and the things of God. She said, I know of no way of teaching morals but by infusing principles of Christianity, nor of teaching Christianity without a thorough knowledge of Scripture. Like, they need to know the Word. And her goal— Above all else was spiritual, and then the practical came out of that. 
And uh, she really wanted the kids and their families to know the Lord, especially when she saw the condition of the churches there. And so it's really neat because that's exactly what happened. All of these families, as she's doing this, again, she's bringing education, bringing the Bible in alongside, and sure enough, people start getting saved. And the churches that had been empty were getting packed out. And then Hannah started opening evening Sunday schools for the adults, insurance collectives to help poor families um, with their medical needs. So doing all these practical things, uh, very much in the you know style of John Wesley, and, and then we're going to talk about the Clapham sect in a minute here. And then she also, you'll, you'll probably like this, she did like a, a very, um, what we would consider a classic women's ministry thing. She started a feast of tea every mm. year. She would have an annual tea where she would bring all of the women in the area, poor, rich, middle class, she would invite everybody together, you know, wear your Sunday best, and then she would wait on them mm. and just serve them. And this was actually a really, I mean, again, this is a simple little practical thing, but it really started to bridge social gaps. That was a huge thing that Hannah Moore was known for, was bringing together different groups in society and the culture. She was a bridge builder, big time. Uh, one biographer said 30 years before Benjamin Disraeli, 40 years before Charles Dickens, Hannah Moore did something to make the two nations, rich and poor, known to each other. And so just, again, the practical in yeah. order to now, I don't, Are you going to mention her um, apologetic against Thomas Paine? Oh, I wasn't going to go there. Is that something, does it tie in right here? Do you want to go ahead and Well, I, it doesn't yeah. tie in, but oh. that's why but I think it's so amazing because in, in 1794, mm. when Thomas Paine, who is a deist, so he believes mm -hmm. God started everything and just left it on its own, he began to, uh, he wrote The Age of Reason, which was an attack on Christianity. Yes. She was asked, mm. she, not a man, was asked mm. to write um, a response to it. Mm. And so she wrote uh, cheap repository tracks from oh, yeah, 1795 yeah, to 1798. Okay, well, then I just wanted to make sure no, we get that's that. Good. Because it's so good because she brings the Lord, God, and the virtues of God right back to the forefront of education. Mm. So I think that has to do with education because, you know, Thomas Paine yes. is called in America the father of education. And he was so deist, and he yeah. felt like to be educated, you have to kind of leave God in the background. And she was like, no, you have to put, to be educated, you have to put God in the foreground. And that's why, you know, we are so intent, because she was educating way before Thomas Paine was oh, yeah. ever educated. Oh, yeah. So that's why I thought that No, was I'm like, glad you, no, that's a perfect tie-in, exactly. Because, yeah, exactly, empowering and encouraging the poor to be educated, that was mm -hmm. such a big, I love that. For the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so for 30 years, actually, she and Patty spent their Sundays, you know, and again, they're getting up 30 years. I mean, this is like they started in their 30s or 40s, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would walk on foot, go on horseback. People would be like, what is up with those ladies? They're so crazy. But they were so determined. They'd go on a circuit and just visit all of their schools all over Somerset. Um, and of course, you know, with a great work of God underway like this, the enemy comes in like a flood, of course. And so they start facing criticism, slander. Uh, one of their teachers apparently decided to pray extemporaneously, meaning she decided to just pray freestyle, not from the Book of Common Prayer. And this is where, um, like you were saying, that yes, it was so shocking. How could you? And that's when she started getting accused of being a Methodist and an enthusiast and all of that sort of a thing. And Hannah was uh, definitely on the evangelical side because she was a bridge builder and she, you know, was very much spirit led, uh, but she was still Anglican, you know. And so it, it was just like, it's sad because the church starts attacking, the Anglican church starts attacking somebody doing what they should have been doing in the first place. 
Um, and so I, you know, I think they're just uncomfortable because Hannah is out doing, you know, right. the work of the ministry. That's right. That's right. Yes. So she, you know, and she hated religious controversy. She agonized over this whole situation. But what was cool about her, um, she didn't really defend herself. She wrote one letter to a bishop to kind of explain what had happened. And then she just said, I'm, I'm just going to let the Lord defend. And so uh, this controversy, it was called the Blagden controversy. It dragged on for like three years. It's kind of crazy. Um, eventually, she was vindicated, but she got so stressed out that she ended up having what she called her great illness from 1803 to 1805, and she never fully recovered from that. She was kind of a frail woman anyway, and so that wiped her out. And, you know, it's kind of important to know, because I know Cheryl and I have talked about this, we always want to remember, too, these are just humans and mm -hmm. just people. Mm -hmm. And one of Hannah's great weaknesses was that she really wanted approval, and mm -hmm. she could become, like I mentioned in the last episode, ingratiating herself to uh, the rich sometimes. And, and so she ultimately rallied, but it was one of those tests of, you know, just finding her identity in the Lord, as we were talking about with the slave thing and stuff, too. So, um, you know, the effect that the Sunday schools had was really profound. They made education more lively and stimulating. They were very progressive. Um, they incentivized learning for kids, which was not really done. Nobody really tried to think of ways to make learning fun. But um, some of them became the first national schools and the basis for today's public primary schools in England, which is amazing. Um, by the 1850s, after Hannah was uh, had passed away, there were actually three-fourths of the working-class kids in the Sunday schools. I mean, again, she and her sister launched this whole thing. Um, so, again, all this is happening concurrently. This is a 30-year period. The anti-slavery movement's going. During this time, in the 1790s, she also became connected with the Clapham sect, which we've mentioned before. And this was a group of influential, evangelically-minded Anglicans, and they really played a huge role in continuing that moral spiritual reform. And the group includes uh, Wilberforce, of course, and Hannah, and Minister John Venn, uh, the chairman of the East India Company named Charles Grant. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Zachary McCauley, Thomas Clarkson, he's in the movie, if you ever watch Amazing Grace. Thomas Clarkson plays a big role in that. Uh, so all of these folks were in it. There were other uh, women involved, but Hannah was the mainstay as far as female members. Um one, her biographer said, this fellowship of like-minded believers bound together by shared moral spiritual values, by religious mission and social activism, by love for each other, changed history as they sought to serve God in every area of their lives, personal and public, at home and abroad. And they were just amazing. They, these guys, I mean, they were, they were really committed. I mean, they would contribute. A lot of these guys contributed the majority of their income yep. to charities and philanthropic groups. I mean, Hannah, she almost went into debt later in life because she was giving so much away to the poor. Did you know she gave 20000 to a bishop wow. in Ohio to start a college? Really? Kenyon College. Oh, I love it. I didn't and, know in that. Kenyon College in Ohio. How They cool. have her portrait when you walk in because it was her seed money. Right, wow. that started that college. He oh, was an it. Episcopalian bishop in Ohio, and she sent the money to start that college. Oh, that's so neat! I know such far-reaching yes. influence. That's so cool. And so you know, and and it's neat because everybody in the group kind of just worked within their gifts. They knew God had gifted them all differently, and Hannah Moore's gift was her wit and her pen. That's what they that's said. Right. And so. I mean, really, this was a day when religious works were not super popular among the upper classes, but Hannah's wit and brilliance made her books the most widely read out there. And they played a big role in which the reforms. Is, which is really incredible because mm. for a woman to write like she's writing. Yes. You know, we've talked about how female authors, even of that time, uh, you've got um, mm. Jane Austen, who wrote under a uh, 
a pseudonym. We'll talk about her in another podcast because she's fascinating. Yes. And there's all this has come out about the spiritual life of Jane Austen, oh, which how cool. is fascinating. There's that. a whole book on it. Yay. But um, anyway, what um, is interesting is that she was writing not only plays, that's how she captured the imagination, and that's what made her acceptable. Mm-hmm. Because she, but she began to write um like uh, apologetically or yes. informationally and formationally, mm. which for a woman was just not done. No, it wasn't. But actually, I'm going to read this quote here because that goes with what you were just saying. Um, this is this was her perspective. She said, one must not merely rail against the darkness, but must instead light a proverbial candle by creating literary cultural works that rival and surpass the bad. Mm-hmm. She's like, we, you know, we have to just write something superior that'll— yes overtake those bad cultural norms, yes. you know, like yes. conquer by culture with the yes. gospel. Yes. So I love that. So, and, and again, one really cool thing, again, Hannah just fit in so well with the Clapham sect because she had that ability and that desire to bridge gaps. We've already seen she could mix rich and poor together, believer and non-believer, Methodist and Anglican. You know, she was such a bridge builder that way. And and yeah, and I read too, one of the things though is she was not ambitious. Yeah. As and that made her kind of acceptable because I, I read yes. that she did not want to run for office. She didn't no. want to be in parliament. Exactly. She didn't want to she didn't want to shake up society any more than she had. Yeah. Her whole you know, as we were talking about, her whole aim was mm. just to serve the Lord and educate people, yep. really, and to yep. set people free. I mean, yes. it was really good. You I know? love it. Oh. I love it. So, uh, you know, and she said that was the beauty of Christianity was that it, she said it, it held not—sorry, it, it is not held out exclusively to a few select spirits. It's a rule of life suited to every condition, capacity, and temper— and so she wanted to make sure that the gospel went out to everyone, like you were saying. So uh, she could be committed to her Christian principles, but still be gracious and loving to those outside the faith or in a different branch, evangelicals like Methodists. She could, you know, she could walk in that. And it was very unusual back then, but it really tied in with the goals of the Clapham community to really um, partner together. Like we all partner together for the kingdom of like mind and like spirit, which is just a very biblical principle. Um, And they did achieve, you know, one historian said they achieved probably more than any other group in English history. Uh, Their attention to compassion, to faith, to morality, family, that's what set the stage for the Victorian era. The best parts of the Victorian era came out of what the Clapham sect was trying to do. Um, And, you know, again, like we were talking about, you know, she really had a way of... uh, Working with, you know, the upper class, but also putting together those cheap repository tracts for the poor, you know, to kind of empower them. And so it's so that they can know the issues. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And to bring, uh, you know, morality um, to their lives, but in a way that they could connect with and relate to. And so. Uh, you know, it was cool because ministers, and, and again, to the upper classes as well, to bring, uh, you know, to bring to light uh, the importance for them to really have a relationship with God. Because a lot of them were just like, oh, I just donate to charities and I'm good to go. I can go live however I want. She's like, no, guys, there's more than that for us as as Christians. Come on. And so it was cool because ministers like John Wesley and John Newton told her how thankful they were because the aristocrats would listen to her uh, talk of godliness and morals in a way that they wouldn't listen to pastors, right? She had a door in through her literature. And one person said there was perhaps no one more able to make an appeal for religion to the fashionable than Hannah Moore. 
She could make her appeals because she did it through this winsome way with her literature and made it appealing. Again, she just went right into the culture and wrote things that were superior to the, you know, trashy novels and all of that. And it made people, you know, want to respond. It brought a lot of people to Christ. And so uh, in her later years, she mostly wrote devotional works. Um and those circulated very widely. Toward the end of her life, she was basically considered like a saint. One biographer said she was the nearest a Protestant culture could come to a holy woman. And so people would kind of almost take a pilgrimage to go and visit her um, and her sisters. She had uh, friendships with some of the royal family. Um, so most of her contemporaries and even all of her sisters, they actually all passed away before her. Um, she died September of 1833. And one witness said prayer was the last thing that lived in her. Every breath was prayer. And so I love this. She was buried in the village of Rington with all of her sisters under a headstone that said, these all died in faith. And I thought, how sweet. I just want to close with just this quote, um, a couple quotes. She said, her pen, her pen left virtually no area of society unmarked, literature, education, morality, religion, and abolition. And she said, biblical Christianity is what I love, a Christianity practical and pure, which teaches holiness, humility, repentance, and faith in Christ, and which, after summing up all the evangelical graces, declares that the greatest of these is love. And that's You know, totally before we started lived. this podcast, you said, Cheryl, I'm so concerned because I have so much to say about <laughs> Hannah Moore. And there's so much more to say. There and is. That's why she's a woman worth knowing. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnut. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.